good evening, listeners. You're listening to the Young Adult Cafe, and I'm Laura Moe. My guest today is Lauren Barrett Logstead. I'll play my intro music, and then we will get the interview underway. As I said, my guest today is Lauren Barrett Logstead, and she is the author of more than 30 books. And her most recent book is called Zombie Abbey, and it's a delightful read. Uh, I have to say, Lauren, I really enjoyed your book. So, um, and I can't wait for you to tell the audience, kind of give them the uh, elevator pitch about about Zombie Alley. Um, well, Laura, thank you so much for having me. Um, mm-hmm. And the best way to describe Zombie Abbey is um, people who are familiar with Downton Abbey imagine mm-hmm. a world that's kind of like that. Um, in this case, it's very specifically set in 1920 in England, and you toss a zombie apocalypse in it. Um, and so you have three sisters um, who thought that their greatest uh, challenge in life was the entail that was going to, you know, eventually take the family estate away from them if one of them doesn't get married. Uh, but now they've got bigger problems. And uh, because of zombies, people who never thought that they would have to work together as equals in their life Upstairs, downstairs, and villagers all have to do so if they have any hope of surviving at all. Well, that's, um, you know, that was, I really liked that aspect of your book. It's very cheeky. You know, it, <clears throat> as a reader, I could tell this author has a great sense of humor. Um, and as also, I could tell that you're, you're also a lover of Downton Abbey and, um, you know, the, and the upstairs, downstairs whole scenario. I am. You know, I love uh, I love everything about it. I love the soap opera aspects. I love the uh, the clothing. You know, the clothing mm-hmm. is absolutely gorgeous. And that's one of the things also that intrigued me about creating this because um, I have a confession to make to you. I am not a big zombie person myself, which makes it bizarre <laughs> that I came up with this idea, but I'm not. My whole family watches Downton Abbey, but it's my husband and my teenager that actually watch Walking Dead, but I've seen some of it, and I've certainly seen plenty of zombie movies, and I've noticed Mm -hmm. that for the most part, they tend to have these monochromatic um, post-apocalyptic palettes. You know, everything is pretty drab, uh, because you're, you know, living with this existential threat, and and life is a mess. And what I thought would be fun is to take this actually gorgeous world, where you have these women wearing these, you know, V&A uh, jewel-colored gowns and tiaras and Chanel and the the um, uh, footmen handsome in their livery. And, you know, these are the people now that are running around with, you know, axes and, and guns and whatever and <laughs> trying to uh, save themselves while still, you know, maintaining our British way of life. I know. I love how, you know, even after a couple of the zombies had been killed, you know, of course, they can't interrupt tea time. You know, and some of the servants right. were just like, really, seriously, they want, they're having lunch now? 
Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, my editor said at one point about father and she's like, well, he's kind of, you know, readers will say he's too stupid to live because he's saying things like, but I must have my daily walk. And, yeah. But to me, no, everyone isn't going to be like that, but there is going to be that one person um, mm-hmm. that's like that, you know, or even in, uh, you know, a, an era afterwards during World War um Two, I believe, uh, the uh, king and queen of England used to insist on occasionally going outside of the palace and walking among the people to, you know, reassure them and, you know, let them know we're going to be okay. And so, you know, bringing that sort of um, stiff upper lip uh, British attitude that is um, sometimes, you know, equal parts um, foolhardy but also incredibly noble uh, into Mm -hmm. the story was a lot of fun, too. Yeah, you know, there, and I like that you gave equal voice to the third, like, well, of course, Will, the, the stable boy, as, you know, the family refers <laughs> the to The hot him. stable boy. You know, the hot stable boy. It's like, hmm. <laughs> and, uh, and, of course, Daniel had his voice. And, and you know, you gave them a whole good backstory, you know, like the tension between Jonathan and Daniel. And, uh, and then, of course, the, I don't know, I, there were a lot, it was, it was actually, it was very well developed. It was almost like, it, for me, it was like seeing new episodes of Downton Abbey because, of course, I've seen all six seasons of that. And um, so this was like revisiting. So I've, I've recommended your book to people who love Downton Abbey, whether they love zombies well, or not, because I'm not a zombie fan either. But the zombie part of it wasn't really, um, I think it was more about the entail and about changing changing history and how these girls developed, you know, because at first they're all kind of like fluffy and gorgeous and they don't seem to have any substance. But as, as you read further in the, you know, they, they develop into individual unique characters. Mm-hmm. Um, and like my 18 year old daughter explained to me when I first came up with this idea, and I was a little bit daunted about uh, handling the zombie aspect of it because, um, you know, I don't feel like that that's my strongest writing gene. And then she said, but, you know, Mom, it's it's not about the zombies. It's the effects that it has on people. It's all the right. you know, psychological mind games and, you know, who, be, who becomes brave that maybe wasn't brave before and, you know, inter, you know, nesting warfare between, you know, the, the people that are still surviving who maybe want power and struggle for power and all of these other things. You know, that's really what a great zombie story is about. It's not, you know, just like mm, eat brains. It's, you know, that's mm-hmm. obviously you have to have that gore factor to a certain extent, too. Um, but it's the struggle and it's the journey. So, yeah, it, you're right. It, and all pretty much everybody in this story changed. And, you know, we like you said, you, you got to see who the leaders are, the true leaders of the pack. And um, and I especially like the changes in the Duke because he came off as just sort of like, just, you know, a stick up his butt in the beginning and you know, couldn't even tie and untie his own shirt or, you know, like his mm-hmm. buttons. But, um, you know, he, he, he changed quite a bit. And, uh, well, I have to say that, that was – I'm glad that you enjoyed that because that was a pleasant surprise for me too. I know that you are um, an, a very accomplished writer, um, Laura. I was just looking at um, 
breakfast with Neruda and maybe you can appreciate the idea that, you know, you, you have an idea sometimes mm-hmm. about your characters and you do think I, the Duke originally, he was almost like a, a redheaded, uh, a carrot topped Prince Charles, you know, with the, the mm-hmm. jug ears and being a bit awkward and, uh, you know, worried about what mommy's going to think. Um, and I thought he was going to stay that way. I didn't plan ahead of time that he was going to find, um, you know, not supreme, unbelievable bravery in him, but that decency, that those mm-hmm. times when you actually do step forward toward danger and say, what can I do here to help my new friend? How can I help right. the cause? Um, right. And so, yeah, he surprised me, uh, which is mm-hmm. uh, I think a wonderful thing as a writer is, is if your characters actually surprise you, you have to hope that maybe they'll surprise readers too and, and readers won't be saying, you know, oh, everything is just so predictable. Yeah, that, because I didn't think, I didn't find your novel predictable. And I think that, you know, you let, that's one of the things, I, I'm a pantser, which is really an, an inefficient way to write. And, uh, but for me, <laughs> I I like the endorphin rush I get when a character starts to go off in his or her own direction, and I'm like, "Oh, that was not planned." And uh, uh-huh. you know, oh well, let's go. Let's see how far this will go. And uh, well, I do so a I, lot of I do a lot of pantsing as well, <laughs> um, and rarely do I plot very much. But I do write according to what I think of as the dartboard method, and that's that I know the concept, in this case, mm-hmm. a Downton-type world with zombies, and I do usually know in advance what the ending is. But what I don't know is how I'm going to get there. So that ending is kind of like it's the, it's the dart I've all, already thrown. I've thrown it first, and now mm-hmm. everything else I do, eventually it has to – it can go all over the place, but eventually it's going to have to fly for home. You know, it's going to be kind of dictated by that. But how I get mm-hmm. there, uh, like I said, sometimes surprises even me. I mean, when I started the book, and I think for the reader too, I thought that a particular romance would be the dominant one in the book. And then again, as I went along, I thought, hmm, well, no, these people are sparking, and these people are sparking. And yeah. And this is where I'm going with this. Well, I loved how Lizzie, you know, became from being a, this ditzy youngest sister into someone of her own merit. And surprised, she surprised yeah. everybody, you know, upstairs and downstairs. Yes. And, and surprised herself, too, because she is, you know, probably the sunniest, I would say, the most immediately likable of the sisters, mm-hmm. because, of course, Kate is prickly and proud, and Grace is, mm-hmm. well, she's very nice and decent, but in the beginning, she's a little bit namby-pamby. She doesn't know, I want my hair this way or I want my hair that way. And, you know, Lizzie, mm-hmm. from the start, I think, is, is great fun, and she has a great energy about her. Um, but everyone else seems to dismiss her as being uh, pretty dull-witted, and she seems to accept that idea about herself. Um, but as it goes along, like you say, it, it changes a bit. And, um, you know, it's funny. I didn't set out to model this in any way on The Wizard of Oz, which is certainly a major archetype in storytelling. And when you stop and yeah. think about it, though, in terms of the three sisters, Kate yeah. could use more <laughs> of a heart, Grace could use <laughs> courage, and Lizzie could use a brain. 
Yeah, exactly. Well, I never that never occurred to me. Wow. <laughs> you know, there is that kind of that holy trinity in writing. Um, you know, things kind of come in threes, and maybe as writers, we subconsciously put that 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 trinity in there without without even knowing that we've done it. So. Cool, yeah, you know. absolutely. The and even with um, oh, you know, sometimes you use adjectives to describe someone, and there's like three. Two feels small. If you went and had four, it would be too much. But three, the right. magic of the threes is is perfect, you know. But you know, you do when you you take something that in a way is so obviously playing off of things that are already in pop culture. You know, you have to expect a little bit of people saying. Some 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 readers reacting. Well, it's just like blah blah, and you know to that I would say, well, um, Downton Abbey didn't invent the idea of three sisters. You know, we had it in right. Petticoat Junction, we had it in the Brady Bunch, <laughs> and the personalities of three sisters often are dictated to a certain extent by birth order. You know, you can usually expect mm-hmm. the oldest one, especially if it's a certain time period like this is, an older time period, um, that she is going to be more domineering, more entitled, that the middle sister is going to be a little bit lost, neither feeling here or there, and that the youngest everyone is just going to treat her like the family pet, something pretty to be patted on the head, but not to be taken too seriously. So... Um, Yes, I guess I've recreated like Marsha, Jan, and Cindy Brady, too. (laughs) Marsha, Marsha, (laughs) Marsha. Exactly. Exactly. It's tough being in the middle. She looks like Marsha, yeah, Kate the blonde. So, yeah, she kind of is Marsha. (laughs) (laughs) So this is your first zombie um, novel, then. Because you've written quite a, you know, quite a slew of novels, and you write for adults and other other age groups of children. What what is your favorite age level or genre to write in? You know, there isn't. It's kind of like a mom who has a lot of kids, which is funny because I only have the one for me to say that, but it's true. Um, you know, I love writing for all the different age groups because <clears throat> each has its own demands and its own unique pleasures. I mean, in terms mm-hmm. of what's been the most satisfying, YA, in a way, is just simply fantastic for the reason that these days you can do anything in YA in terms of sophistication of theme, of plot, that you can do on the adult side. The main difference is that your point-of-view characters and your target audience to them, it's still possible for ideas to feel new and fresh. You know, they're not like mm-hmm. you or I who, stunning as we are, aren't teenagers <laughs> anymore. And so, do you know what I mean? Like, first love is behind us. Uh, disillusionment yeah. with, uh, is, I don't know, selling themselves into war. All of these things are behind us. But when you're a teenager, it's still possible for some of these things to be new and feel fresh. So that. Fresh energy is one of the things I think I love most about writing for YA. Um, I love adult because that's where I started. Um, And I feel like, and this may be inaccurate, I'd actually have to look at the books I've published, but I feel like I've done the broadest work in terms of 
you know, comedy, drama, mystery, historical, you know, I've gotten to do kind of everything there, which has been fabulous. Um, but writing for children uh, in many ways was the most rewarding. Uh, my husband and daughter and I, starting from when my daughter was six, we created something called the Sisters 8 series for uh, young readers, uh, ages 6 to 10. It's a nine-book series. It's since sold over a quarter of a million copies, which in itself is gratifying. I wish everything I had done sold that well. Um, (laughs) But, you know, but such is not the case. We know what a writer's life is like. But the greatest part about that was two things. One, it was something that I got to do with my daughter as she was growing up, which was a pretty unique experience to have. Um, But two, little kids write fan letters, and they write the most amazing fan letters that will make you laugh and touch your soul. Sometimes they'll say things that make you realize that they maybe live a lonely life at school. Maybe they're an outsider, but they'll say, you know, uh, I feel less alone at, at recess now because in your book are, are my friends and they're always with me now. You know, mm-hmm. uh, you can't replace that. Um, there was a little girl that wrote a couple of years ago. It started out any other fan letter with, you know, oh, you know, I'm eight years old and my, the names of my guinea pigs are. And then she wrote, um, after my brother died last year, <laughs> and oh, I felt my heart my. stop reading it. And then oh, she went on to say how, you know, the books, they cheered her and they gave her a world to imagine about. And, um, you know, needless to say, I, I kept on uh, correspondence for a while with her and her mother sent her, you know, signed special copies and and all that kind of thing. But it's kind of amazing to think that something my family and I originally created on a lark did that. Mm-hmm. If if I never sold the other 249,999 copies, if it was just the one copy to this little girl, it would have been worth it. Wow. That's, you know, that's, ama- that's an amazing story because you have a lifelong fan in that girl. So she she is a she is a wonderful little girl. Um, yeah. And uh yeah. So uh yeah. so I guess that was a long-winded way of saying I love it all for different reasons. Okay. Well, you know, and that's <laughs> a, that's a fair answer. And uh now I was reading a you did a guest post um on the librarian talks and it was about some of your favorite words and you talked about um, you mentioned how you actually use a real dictionary. I still do too. I don't like the online dictionaries as well because they 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 don't they don't seem to go into much depth unless you use one that is like through a university website that you have to pay mm-hmm. for. But you know, just to use an app on my phone, it's like oh, they give you maybe a very brief definition. Same with the thesaurus, but. You know, maybe because we're kind of old school, but I use a thing called a super thesaurus. It has it's a it's this massive book that has it seems mm-hmm. it has every word in it, and I love I don't know I just I carry a dictionary with me at all times. It's kind of a sickness. Yep. You know, I, I love keep one in the I love of my real. <laughs> I agree. I love real reference books. I mean, obviously, sometimes if you're just maybe in the middle of, of crafting an email or whatever, I don't know, you know, yeah. it's easier to yeah. just look at the online dictionary. But I love my Merriam-Webster's 11th edition. That's the one that I still have, the most recent one that I use. And like I said in that article, you know, there was a word listed there. I think it was make bait that make I bait. would not yeah. have known 
of its existence if I weren't looking for something else in the dictionary and saw that word, you know, that little top piece at the top of the pages uh, where they say the Mm -hmm. first word on that page. And I was like, well, that's an interesting word I've never seen in my life. What does it mean? And, you know, (laughs) I feel like my life is fuller as a result. Yeah. I used to do a writing exercise when I was still teaching um, where I would copy pages from the dictionary and then hand them out randomly to students. And I'd say, find five words on this page and use it in a paragraph. You know, it'd be words that <laughs> they just never, you know, they, they just never used the five words that they'd never used. And I would get the most uh-huh. outrageous um, <clears throat> paragraphs and stories out of this. And kids would find words that they, they're like, oh, what a cool word, you know, and they'd start using it in conversations. So... I don't know. You, you kind of can't do that idea. Yeah, and you can't really no. do that with the, the electronic stuff. It's like it's almost like we they don't they don't have to work very hard to find an answer. And I think that they're they're missing out on everything coming to them. I mean, you, they just conjure it, you know, Alexa, bring, you know, what's the name of this word? And um, they don't have right. to look for it. And it doesn't it doesn't mean it as much. And research has shown that kids who read text from paper books are able to hold on to that, that text longer than if they read it on an electronic source. It's almost Interesting. like the, I did not know that. Yeah. There's something with brain science um, about that, you know. But, so, I, you know, I think that we'll probably always have textbooks because – and I think that it, it, they also have shown that kids who take notes where they actually have to write it down will also remember it more rather than typing it into something. Yes, so. um, handwriting things down definitely. I, that was one of my biggest tricks in college was whenever I needed to memorize things, you know, mm-hmm. I would uh, – I wouldn't just read it in my notebook over and over again. I would like transcribe my notebook because the act of writing, it's like your brain is doing two things now. It's, it's reading right. while you're writing, but you're writing too. And the, the second activity helps transfer it from short-term to long-term memory. Um, right. But that idea that, that things read on the screen stay in your brain uh, shorter than things read on mm-hmm. paper is very interesting to me. And I wonder if our brains just – Oh, I don't know. It's like, you know, when you read articles online or whatever, or, and you read so much just stuff online, Twitter, this or that, that if the brain just kind of almost cues you that, oh, well, this must be disposable. <laughs> you know, I don't have you know, to, to try to fight yeah. to keep this. Yeah, because hmm. a, a newspaper is tangible, whereas if we read the news on screen, it's, you know, it, 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 it's, a, it's a blip. And then we, it's like our brain just says, oh, you don't have to remember that. Because, you know, here's mm-hmm. another tweet or here's another. And, uh, but, yeah, if you actually, if it's tangible and, you, you know, you can actually underline it and engage with it, that's a little different. So I don't know. It, it, it's interesting to, to know, you know, that I know that there are probably brain scientists out there analyzing that. And, and I know an argument could be made on either side. Um, I think mm-hmm. that get, to get a really well-rounded education, you need to be able to use both. Um, and yeah. I think that, like, our generation, we, I used to tell my students, I'd say, you know, we old folks, we have, we're, like, when the apocalypse happens, we're going to be the ones with the superpowers because we know, what, we know how to write things down without electricity and, 
you know, we can do all of this stuff that you kids have no idea uh-huh. how to do. So they roll their right. eyes at me and say, you know what? We're the ones with the superpowers. So, yep. you know, we had a, um, I don't know if you, I don't know, you're in the East Coast. We had a storm a few years ago um, that knocked out power in parts of Ohio. I was living in Ohio then. Knocked out power for several weeks in parts of Ohio. And um, when we, it was right, I think it was, a, yeah, it was in the middle of summer, and then when we came back to school after that, the kids were all moaning about how I couldn't charge my phone for two weeks, or I couldn't use the Internet, <laughs> blah, 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 you know. They actually had to, like, talk to their parents and their families and play games, you know, stuff that I grew up doing. And it just about mm-hmm. killed most of them. <laughs> Well, I, you know, I'll, I'll confess to you, I mean, obviously, you know, a computer as a writer, you know yourself, there are a lot of things over the years yeah. that it has made things easier for. I mean, mm-hmm. I started off, you know, long ago when I was first trying to get published, you know, yeah, I had to first print out the manuscript. It would take, yeah. I believe it took uh, 13 hours to, at a time to print out copies of my first book. <laughs> On a dot you know? printer, probably. <laughs> Right. And then you would have to, you know, package it up and go to the post office and spend a lot of money to send it to this agent or that agent or what have you. And now I can write something and I can immediately send it all over the world without ever leaving my basement. I can turn on General Hospital and listen to it while I'm doing it. You know, it's, so some things are absolutely wonderful. Um, yeah. But other things with technology, I do feel people, I have friends that get on me because I, um, I still have a flip phone. Okay. Oh, and people make fun of wow, me for that. that but, you know, cool. Rihanna has a flip phone too. So oh, I'm wow. thinking it's not that I'm not cool. I'm beyond cool. Um, but, you know, I don't want a phone that can do a gazillion things because I do get enough input from Facebook and Twitter and other things during the day that I feel for me, not for, I'm not trying to mm-hmm. decide stress world, but just for me, I don't need more distractions and more noise. Yeah, I, I, I get that because I tend to go on Instagram a lot during the day. <laughs> mm-hmm. So... You know, I like to look at cat pictures. So. <laughs> See, and, and I still get that on Twitter. I get that from following emergency kittens and bodega cats. Yeah. And so a couple of times a day I see these amazing cats, and it's, it's just enough. But probably <laughs> if I had a phone, I would fall down the cat wormhole <laughs> of the Internet, and you'd never see me again. Oh, yes. Yeah. yeah, I have to limit myself. And I, I know other writers who they actually install software on their computers that shuts them off of the other air, you know, shuts them out so that they will stay on task. Well, what I do is I, I use two laptops. I have one that I, I do my writing on, and I, I actually have a button on the side where I can flip that it w- won't get the Internet. So when I go to the coffee uh-huh. shop, it has a big red X there, and so I don't log into the coffee shop's Wi-Fi. Because if I'm at home, then I will. I'll check Twitter and do all that stuff. But if I'm off-site, uh-huh. then I'm sitting there for three hours and you know I don't have access to the Internet. And I won't use public Wi-Fi anyway because I don't want you know, viruses and stuff like that. So you know, every, each one of us has to have a method of doing it. You know, unless we're Ted Kaczynski and live in the woods, we're going to have <laughs> attempted 
by right by the internet. I mean, we we kind of have to be connected because uh, you otherwise you're never going to know what's going on. Right. So, right. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. So what do you um like your the book is out now. Zombie Abbey is out now. And um what are you working on at the present? Are you working on another YA? Um, I'm trying to figure out what the next thing is for me. Um, it's mm-hmm. rare for me to go very long without a new thing. But this year I had, a, you know, you know yourself as a writer that, you know, when you have a new book come out, a lot of your energy goes into promoting right. that book. Right. Um, and this year there is uh, Zombie Abbey came out in April. In June, the paperback edition of my last uh, children's book, I Love You, Michael Collins, which is about the, uh, the astronauts going to the moon for the first time on Apollo 11. Uh, the paperback of that comes out in June. And then in August, my next adult book, uh, The Other Brother, comes out. So wow. I can imagine there is a lot going on uh, with, yeah. with promoting three books over basically a, a four- to five-month period of time. Um, so yes, I'm trying to decide what the next, the next thing to light my, uh, imagination on will be, whether it'll be another children's book or adult or, um, you know, I, I certainly hope that Zombie Ambi does well enough that the publisher will want to do more because with all those characters, I do think that there's a potential to, uh, for a lot of stories to tell in that world. I think that there's, yeah, I think there's a great potential for that. So, and you know, even though it, I guess you would call this historical novels, and YA historical novels tend not to do well, there's a different energy to this one that I think mm-hmm. it, it actually will do well because uh, even a lot of teenage girls, you know, their moms and grandmas are all fans of Downton Abbey and a lot of the dads mm-hmm. even. You know, it, Downton Abbey had, has this universal appeal, as do zombies. So I think that there's a tremendous potential, you know, for the handsome stable boy to have perhaps have his own novel, and, you know, the handsome yes. footman and, you know, the, <laughs> each of the sisters. So, I, you know, there's, yeah, the, it's a historical novel, but it has a, it doesn't have that historical quality. Like your daughter said, that it, it has sort of a universal, there are story themes in there that are universal. Mm-hmm. So I think it's going to appeal to a lot. So it's only been out, what, about, two or three weeks, so, um, you know, I, yeah. I, I think, we, I, I, you know, I hope that it's, it does well because I, I've been recommending it to people. Well, I've done, uh, over the course of my career, I've done a few, um, you know, I guess you could put them under the heading of historical novels. Um, this one, uh, The Twin's Daughter, uh, The Education of Bet, uh, on the adult side, Vertigo. Um, but I would say historical novel with a little H as opposed to a big H um, because right. like with the zombie Abbey, I don't go into heavy detail about the time period or even the mores or stuff. I give, I try to just give enough of a flavor so you know you're somewhere different, um, mm-hmm. but without, you know, pages and pages of description. Right. Yeah. Cause that's probably one thing that holds a lot of, historical readers back is that they you have to build the world but you know your world right. seems to be it's building uh, well there's already already a connection with the television show so you didn't really have to build too much of that world because I think almost everybody in the eastern or western universe has seen that 
Um, right. But, it's, you know, it's insane. People, it's like in like you know. 220 countries or something like that it's available. Right. You know? Um, so, yes, you're right. It's kind of like a near universal thing. If you say it, people know what you're talking about. Even if they don't watch the series, they're going to know what you're talking about. Um, right. But, yeah, I try to keep my historical, like, say, rather than if I was going to describe The Twins' Daughter, I wouldn't say it's a historical novel about. I would say that it's a, uh, you know, suspense novel set in the 1880s. Do you know what I mean? So in, right. I, think, I think of... Uh, uh, the historical nature more of a setting in my novels than a, uh, well, like I said, you know. <laughs> right. I'm yeah, saying it's it more in different ways now, but you get it. Right. It's a suspense novel first that happens to take place in a different time period. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. You yes. get that. Yeah. But, yeah, I think fans of Pride and Prejudice's zombies will also, they'll latch on to this. Because that's, that was, you know, actually we were talking about Jason Reculak before we came on, and that was one of the books that Quirk Books, um, did well on, and um, yes, you know, so that it's yeah, it's a similar type of uh, phenomena. What you know, you just you just add some zombies, to probably any any plot theme, and there you go. <laughs> right, right, yes. Um, I think some of the other classics, I they haven't done um, uh, zombies to Jane Eyre, but I know that there have been, I think, more than one vampire. Uh, thing you know right. thrown in there, and I, I think there's you know I don't know Jane Slayer or something like that, and uh, right, yeah, right, yeah. Well, because well, um, it is fun to play my... with those worlds, you know, take classic novels and then see yeah. what what can I do that's different with this. Right. Well, a lot of my listeners are also writers, and before we wrap this up, um, what what advice do you have out there for anybody who's thinking, hmm, you know, I could write a book. Um, let me let me let me do this. Well, I guess the uh, the two biggest pieces of advice, and I always say the same things, and I hope that doesn't make me boring. But number one is read, read, read everything you can get your hands on, including outside of whatever the genre is that you think you want to write in. Read it all. Because you cannot be a good writer without being a great reader first. You have no idea right. in my life. Well, maybe you do because you're a writer. But how often mm-hmm. at, in life I'll meet people and they find out what I do and they say, oh, you know, as soon as I have time, I'm going to write a novel or, oh, I want to be a novelist too. And then when I ask them what they read, what they're, it's, oh, I don't have time to read. I think, how can you write if you don't read? So that's number one. And number two, and this is a biggie, always remember the only person who can ever take you out of the game is you. And by that I mean the writing world, again, as you know, Laura, it can be a cruel and capricious place. You can spend years (laughs) trying to get published. Nobody in their right mind does. It's a shot in the dark. Would choose this. Right. Um, You get no said to you by agents. You get no said to you by editors. Even once you're published, no comes at you in so many different forms. Um, You know, a bad review on Amazon, what have you. But no one can say, you know, unlike other jobs that someone can take it away from you (laughs) or Mm -hmm. fire you or not hire you in the first place. No one can say you have to stop writing. So if you want to be a writer, you know, chances are the first book you write will not sell. 
I know very few people for whom it's true that the very first novel they wrote sold to a publisher right away. Usually it takes a few. Sometimes it takes a lot more than a few. But whatever it is, if this is what you want, just keep going. Yeah. Well, that's great advice. So. Well, Lauren, I have totally enjoyed talking to you, and um, I wish you really, I really wish you the best of luck on Zombie Abbey and all of your other books that you have coming out at the same time. (laughs) (laughs) Well, uh, thank you so much, Laura. It's been delightful talking to you. Yeah, it's been great. So I'm glad we were able to work this in because, like you said, you've got a busy next three months coming up. A a little bit, a little bit. Um, But this has been great fun for me, so thank you for having me. All righty. Thank you for being a guest. All righty. Bye-bye now. (laughs) Okay. Bye-bye. And I also want to thank my listeners uh, for tuning in today. And I've been talking with Lauren Barrett's Logstead. And I hope you'll give her um, Zombie Abbey a a chance uh, because it's it's a delightful book. It's a fairly quick read. Um, And if you're a fan of Downton Abbey, then you'll be a fan of this. Uh, This is... uh, and I'm taking a slight break. I'll come back in June. We're, the show is going to have a slightly different format probably when I come back. So, um, you know, stay tuned and we'll, we'll find that out. But this has been a copyrighted podcast solely owned by the Authors on the Air, Global Radio Network, LLC. You've been listening to the Young Adult Cafe. And this is Laura Moe wishing you a great um, Memorial Day coming up. All righty. Bye-bye now. <laughs>